Well, not really knowing uh, what you have can lead to all sorts of wrong belief and wrong actions. Let me give you an example. When I was uh, a much younger, uh, circa like 1993, um, and I'm a the, the fall of 93, a brand new college student. And in those days, you know, tech and apps uh, didn't exist, right? So uh, I got my first checking account that summer, uh, got my first debit card to get, to get ready to go to college uh, and, and have that uh, to, to use some money and, and spend money and whatnot. And, and of course, learning some of those lessons of, of you know, not really checking the balance or keeping the balance, uh, you know, very well. Uh, just kind of assuming like whatever the ATM machine told me I had in my account at the moment was what I actually had in my account. Not thinking about some of the other payments that had yet to kind of, you know, own purchases had yet to kind of hit that account and clear that account. Uh, so I learned a lesson uh, about, you know, a couple dozen times uh, through those years uh, that, you know, if you don't really know what you have, uh, it can lead to all sorts of wrong belief and wrong actions. And then uh, having even less money when the overdraft fee hits your account as well. Um, like I said, it only took me a couple dozen times to, uh, to learn that lesson. Uh, but, but not really knowing what you have can, can lead to all sorts of wrong beliefs and, and wrong actions. And this is true for us as followers of Christ as well. Not knowing what we actually have in Christ can lead to all sorts of wrong belief and wrong actions. Only in the Christian life, it's not discovering that your account has been overdrawn and, and you're lacking, but, but the exact opposite problem. It's failing to understand that in Christ, you already have every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing in him. But because we forget this or fail to understand what that means, we can believe that we're lacking something. And because of that belief, we, 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 we kind of seek to find and fill ourselves with what we think we're lacking in all sorts of a host of things, whether it be relationships, worldly success, possessions, and, and on and on. That wrong belief can lead to a host of wrong actions. And, and so it's critical that we understand what we actually have in Christ, that we know and rightly believe that we possess in Christ every spiritual blessing so that we might rightly live for God's glory as God's people. That's the heart of the passage that we're looking at today in Ephesians. As we continue, we're looking at Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Uh, there are Bibles on your row. Uh, you'll find it on page 976 on, in those Bibles. And I invite you to turn there in the scriptures and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful uh, for this time to gather together for a beautiful day uh, that we look forward to, to celebrating some time connecting with one another. But, but most of all today, Lord, we pray that you, by your spirit, would open our hearts and our minds to see, to understand, to believe, to know what we have in Christ, to begin to get a glimpse of, of the wonder of what it means that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing, that you might help us to know what we have, that we might live as your people in the ways that you have called us to, for your glory and for our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. The Apostle Paul wants us to know, which means that Jesus wants us to know, that as believers in Christ, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing so that you might rightly believe and live as God's people for God's glory. That's the big idea of the passage. Paul is, is very excited to share this with us. Right, So excited, in fact, that, that in the original language, this entire passage is just one breathless sentence. Right? In our English translations, it's broken down into a couple paragraphs with, with numerous sentences. But in the original Greek, this is one breathless sentence without punctuation. And so for all of you who are, have a tendency to be very concerned with, with grammar and punctuation, I invite you to take a deep breath uh, and relax just a little bit. Um, this might just be like the greatest run-on sentence of all time. I mean, Paul is just absolutely overjoyed with the truth that he is sharing. I don't know, maybe he's saying death has lost its sting or something like we did this morning, and he just could not help but just explode in praise at the wonder of all that we have in Christ. He's so overwhelmed with worship for God that he just explodes, and he cannot contain himself. Even from prison, which by the way, Paul, as he pins this letter to the church of Ephesus and the surrounding churches, is in chains. He's in prison. But even in prison, thinking on all that we have in Christ, he cannot help but worship and just erupt in, in joyful worship of God as he shares this with with us. He, 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 is, he is just overwhelmed by God's goodness toward us. He's absolutely filled with joy to help us understand and grasp the reality of all that we have in Christ. 
Now, it's important that we pause and, and understand something here because the reality is, is our tendency is to kind of look at the Bible through our Western and especially American individualistic lens, right? That we read the Bible and we think about me, me, I, I have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And, and that's not incorrect necessarily, but, but we need to kind of remove that lens, right? We might be tempted through that lens to think, how awesome, I can't wait to hear about my blessings, how I have been blessed personally, just me, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. But the Bible was mostly written to not individuals, but communities. I mean, much, almost all of the New Testament was written and addressed to churches, to bodies of believers. And if you can take off, right, if you take off your Western individualistic kind of lenses, you will see that this passage is just packed full with the words us and we, right? This, this is about us collectively. We each together share and possess every spiritual blessing in Christ. These aren't individualistic blessings, but, but communal blessings that we share together as the body of Christ. Blessings that we're giving, given that are meant to bind us together all the more in unity as we enjoy these blessings together in Christ. Just, just look at the text. Just scan through those verses. If your Bible hopefully is still open there in your lap. And just make note real quick. How many times do you see the word us? How many times do you see the word we? It's all over the place. It's literally pretty much every single verse of this passage that you see those words, us, we, ours. And in verse 10, where you don't see it, guess what it's talking about? It's talking about God's purpose to do what? To unite all things, all people, all things together, including us in Christ. So, so that's the lens that we need to be looking through. These are our blessings in Christ that we share together in him. Now, with that in mind, look with me at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What does this mean that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Right, the heavenly places, we'll, we'll see as we read the book of Ephesians, we study it some more, is referring to the spiritual dimension where God and all spiritual powers are, are dwelling, right? Here's what the book of Ephesians is going to tell us as we work our way through about the heavenly places, right? They, right here, verse 3, they are the spiritual dimension where we have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing, in verse 20 of chapter 1, they are the place where Jesus has been enthroned forever over all evil powers. In chapter 2, verse 6, they are where we have already been raised and seated with Christ right now. Chapter 3, verse 10, they are where the victory of Christ over all evil powers is demonstrated and displayed in the unity of the church gathering under Christ. And lastly, in chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, We'll see it's also where we need to stand firm against the spiritual warfare assaults of the devil and, for, and the forces of evil and darkness that are with him. But understanding that the, heavenly, that the heavenly places refers to the realm where Christ is already ruling and reigning over the evil one and his schemes is another way of saying that these blessings 
that, that while we can't enjoy and experience them fully, as fully as we one day will when Christ returns in glory, they are no less true and no less real and, and able to fill our hearts with joy and worship and fullness even now, right? That they are actually the ultimate reality of, of who we are and what we possess because we have received these blessings in the presence of Christ and he has secured them. And that is a, the deepest reality of, of who we are and what we have. And, and as they did for the Apostle Paul, uh, who is writing this, they can, they can lead us to have and possess even greater and deepening joy and satisfaction and, and lead us to worship Jesus more and more, even now. Even though we'll have them in a fuller portion later when Christ returns in glory. It's another way of saying that these blessings transcend our earthly experience of our current day-to-day lives. And they tell us our true and ultimate reality, our true and ultimate identity, what we really have. Not what it appears that we have, right? Not what the, the ATM machine tells us we have, but what we really have, what we truly possess. And in Christ, we truly, even right now, in the, the pain of this life, in the, the suffering, in the grief, in the toil that we all go through, even now we possess every spiritual blessing. That's what's ultimately and really true. That word every is, is a remarkable word. It's, it's telling us that every believer possesses and shares in every spiritual blessing in Christ. Nothing is being held back. Nothing is being held back. Different believers, we will see even in in the book of Ephesians, right, possess different spiritual gifts. We're given gifts. Every every Christian, everyone who is in Christ, who is indwelled by the Spirit, is given spiritual gifts. But those gifts are different sometimes. We don't all have exactly the same spiritual gifts. We have different gifts. And, but, but different believers possess different spiritual gifts, but every believer possesses every spiritual blessing in Christ. None is more or less blessed than the other. So what are the blessings that we possess in Christ? And, and, and don't rush, rush past the part that says, in Christ, right? Eleven times in these verses, we're reminded of all that we have in Christ in Him, through Him, under Him. It's not that we're simply blessed through Jesus as if He were simply the vehicle to deliver the blessings that just kind of pass through Him, but we're blessed in Christ through our union and our oneness with Him by faith. While there are a number of blessings that we see in this passage, we can really narrow them down into three major blessings that actually relate and connect to the triune nature of our God. After all, the the Christian God is is a triune God. He's Trinity, one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons who are each fully and equally God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here are the, the three blessings. We are chosen by the Father. We are redeemed by the Son, and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. First, we are chosen by the Father. 
That's a summary of what you see here in verses 4 through 6. That even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, as God the Father, that, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You hear those words there? These are some trigger words sometimes, right? Predestination. He chose us. But this is the language of election, the doctrine of election, the blessing of election. And, and thankfully, there's, there's absolutely no controversy uh, over the doctrine of election. Uh, no, no heated opinions about it at all. Um, that's a joke. Sarcasm is one of my spiritual gifts, uh, you will find. Um, this, is, this is one of the biggest theological debates out there, right? There, there are those people who will say, God chose us. And there are other people who say, no, 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 we chose God. But, but what does the Bible say? Which one is it, right? Did God choose us or did we choose him? What's the truth? The Bible says, yes. Yes is the answer. But the order is incredibly significant. God chose us first. Apart from God's choosing us, we would never choose him. It's not that we're robots, that we don't make a real choice. But if God doesn't choose us, we would never choose him. It is only his choosing of us that enables us to make a real choice to choose him. You know, we, we want to like separate these things. That it's like either this or it's this. And it, it can't be like we have a problem. I don't know if you noticed in our culture lately. We have a problem with nuance. Uh, it, it is something that we struggle with. But the scriptures are like, you know, God is absolutely sovereign. He rules over all. He reigns over all. Nothing happens apart from his will. And we are responsible. We make real choices. They're like two pedals on the bicycle, as the, the illustration says. They go together. A plain reading of this text makes it clear that, that it is God who chose us first before the foundation of the world. You and I weren't even here. The world wasn't even here. And he chose us in him. And it's his choice that enables our response of choosing him in faith. The doctrine and blessing of election gets, gets a lot of pushback. And ultimately, in the end, it's hard for many of us to embrace it because we don't really think that those who aren't chosen really, truly deserve God's judgment, which may actually reveal that the real truth is that we really don't think we deserve God's judgment, that it's not fair. The real question isn't to ask, how could God not choose everyone? But rather, how and why would God choose anyone? Because the truth is that every single one of us has sinned and rebelled against God. We've spit in his face with our life and our actions. Left to ourselves, we will only continue to choose sin and self. It's only the grace of God only the grace of God. It's only because of the love of God who set his heart on us that any of us are chosen and rescued. 
We all deserve judgment for our sin, eternal death. It is grace that anyone is saved, that anyone is saved. But that said, it's true. Like it can be absolutely difficult to embrace this doctrine. It raises a number of questions. And let me give you a few of them. If, if our salvation is all God's doing, it's all based on God's choice, what's the point of evangelism? Like, why should we bother sharing the gospel with people? It's all God. It's all His choice. He alone is the one who saves and, and elects those who are His. That's one question. Or another one, doesn't this breed pride in those who are chosen? Like they're the special ones? Doesn't that breed pride? Or, or doesn't this discourage, a third question, holiness? Doesn't it discourage holiness since we're chosen and nothing can undo God's choice, right? He rules as sovereign over all. What does it matter how we live? Those are important questions, very important questions. But again, a careful examination of this passage actually answers each of them with gentleness, with kindness. Election doesn't make evangelism pointless because, as it says in verse 4, he chose us in him, in Christ. But how did he do that? How did he do that? You find the answer in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Did you hear that? It is through the preaching of the gospel. Someone sharing and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to someone else. It is through the preaching of the gospel that God elects those who he has saved. That he rescues those who he chose in eternity past. It is through the preaching of the gospel that he has sovereignly decided to do that work which means evangelism is absolutely necessary. It is God's elected, chosen, sovereign means for redeeming his people that he has called to himself. And so we must share the gospel. That's how we, we receive that call. That's how we respond to that call. And it's wonderful good news, right? It is wonderful good news because it actually makes evangelism, it empowers it. It gives a freedom to our doing of evangelism, our engaging and sharing the gospel with others. Because if you think about it, the pressure is relieved, right? It's not on, all on you and how well you say it and how perfect you, you communicate it to your neighbor that determines whether or not they're going to believe it or not. It's not on you to just totally, you've got to like arm wrestle people into, to believe in this. Now, we should absolutely give great care and attention to how we share the gospel. And we should do so with gentleness, with love, and with compassion. And we should work on doing it to the best of our ability to get glorify God, to worship Him in that. But friends, it's not on you to save your neighbor. God is the one who saves. And that brings great freedom to know that even when the words come out wrong, He's still able to work in spite of you so that He gets all the glory. That's good news. It's, it's empowering news. As far as election breeding pride, it should be, if you really think about it, the exact opposite. 
right? If your salvation is, is based entirely on God's choosing and doing, then it's not about you. It's not about you being good enough or smart enough or more deserving than someone else because you're not. You're not. It's only by the grace of God that you have been saved. Only by His grace. You have merited nothing by your own effort. It's all Him. And that should only make you increasingly humble and grateful for God's incredible gift of grace that He would rescue you. What a gift. An election shouldn't discourage the pursuit of holiness. In fact, verse 4 tells us again that we were chosen in Him so that we should be what? Holy and blameless in His sight. Again, the gratitude, the joy that should be there, that God would save us, should, should only move us to want to do what God says, to want to live in a way that brings glory to Him, that, that honors Him, that obeys Him, that worships Him in every thought, word, and deed. Should only want, it should only lead us to want to be all the more holy and blameless, especially when you understand what it is that He has chosen you for. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, there's something very important to catch here because sometimes in our kind of lingo, I don't, I don't know that we understand this, but what that's actually saying is that, that apart from Christ, we are not God's children. We're not. But by the incredibly generous love of God, he chooses us. He adopts us and makes us his children in Christ. And again, as C.S. Lewis said, he, he loved us not because we, are, we were lovable, but because he is love. In spite of how lovable, unlovable we are, he, he, he loved us and, and still chose us to be his, to make us his children and give us all the privileges of his son, Jesus Christ to share in Christ's inheritance as his brothers and sisters, God's beloved children. When you really think about it and consider, consider it, what this means, what you've been called into, what you have been made, adopted as God's beloved child, to share in all the riches of Christ, with Christ, in Christ, you begin to understand why the great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, would say, election sets the soul on fire with enthusiastic delight in God. What a wonder. Right? Just think about it. Before the foundation of the world, God thought of you and chose you, not because of anything you would do to deserve it. You wouldn't. You don't deserve it. It wasn't because you are so lovable but because he is love that he chose you. This means, what this means, friends, is that when Jesus came to live the sinless life that you could not live in your place, he was doing so aware of you. He was doing so with his heart set on you and me, us, together. That when Jesus hung on the cross, he was there, Dying for your specific sins. 
Not sins in general, opening the door for you to maybe choose or reject it later, but for your specific sins, past, present, future, he was there personally, dying in your place, my place. He predestined you in love according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. What a tremendous blessing for us as God's children. We are chosen for adoption by God the Father. But, but there's more to every spiritual blessing here. We also see that we are redeemed by the Son. Right? And in our culture, we, we use the language of addiction. We talk a lot about addiction. Someone is addicted to drugs. Someone is addicted to pornography and, and so on. But the Bible speaks a lot about being enslaved. It's the same idea. Same idea as addiction, being enslaved to something Something has mastered us. Something is harming us. Something has power over us and is destroying us. And that something is sin. And, and so we need redemption. We need rescue. Redemption in the Bible is to be set free and released. To have the shackles removed that are chaining you, holding you down. To be delivered but the language of slavery and redemption is woven throughout all of the Bible and kind of goes all the way back to the Old Testament book of Exodus and kind of echoes forward from there. And we studied Exodus a little over a year ago, but let me give you a brief summary of what we read in Exodus, right? The Israelites, the people of God, were enslaved in Egypt by Pharaoh. God comes to Pharaoh through Moses, telling Pharaoh to repent and to let God's people go. And Pharaoh refuses, right? He continues to refuse God, and God keeps sending these judgments in the form of plagues upon Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. Over and over, it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, that God hardened his heart. And Pharaoh illustrates a powerful truth that the Puritans would explain like this. They would say, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. In other words, that every time the truth of God, the gospel is proclaimed, every time grace is extended, we are either softened or hardened. But we cannot remain neutral to it. And, and Pharaoh's heart just got harder and harder. A final warning of a final plague is given to Pharaoh that if he refused to let the people go, the firstborn, firstborn son in every household would, would die with the exception of the, the families uh, of, the, of God's people who were instructed by God through Moses to take a lamb without spot or blemish and in faith take that lamb, slaughter it, put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their home so that when death came into the land of Egypt, it would see the blood on the doorposts and, and pass over the homes of those whose faith was in the blood of the lamb. It was in this way that God's people were redeemed from slavery in Egypt and delivered, set free. This, this, that's all, of course, pointing us to Jesus, right? Jesus, he is the Lamb of God, the perfect, holy Lamb of God, our perfect substitute. And our faith is in Jesus' blood that was shed in our place for our sins, that we might be redeemed, set free from enslavement to sin and death. And apart from Christ, that's what we are. We are enslaved to sin, separated from God, deserving of the just punishment, the just judgment of eternal death. 
and we are completely powerless to break free from that. But here is the blessing. Verses 7 and following here. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Through the blood of Christ, His sacrifice in our place as our ultimate Passover lamb, we have been set free from enslavement to sin and death, and, and death passes over us. It passes over us. Primarily, this means that we have the blessing of forgiveness. Then in Christ, all of your sins, past, present, and future sins, sins you don't even know about yet, are forgiven. They are forgiven, paid for in full by His blood. Take a moment and just think on that, right? The sin that today, as you're sitting here, haunts you and shames you, right? The sin that, that may be impacting the way that you're living right now because of that shame, because you're trying to carry the weight of it all by yourself. In Christ, through His blood, that sin is forgiven. You have been set free, you are no longer marked by it. It no longer defines you, has anything to say about you, Christian. Even though you wrestle with it, it is forgiven, paid in full. In Christ, through his blood, you are forgiven. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you know what that means? It means there's no condemnation, right? The guilt is gone. The shame has been taken away. There is nothing left to condemn you before God. Jesus has paid it all. What a blessing. Now, it's not that God doesn't care about your sins. Right? He cares deeply. He sent his son to die in your place. It's a pretty serious thing. It's not that he doesn't care about how you have treated God or how you treated others. It's just that Jesus Christ has already suffered in your place the punishment that you deserve for your sins and is paid in full. All of them, past, present, and future, paid in full. So there's no condemnation. There's no shame. There's no need for you to carry it on your own and try to hide it. You're actually free to bring your sin out into the light and put it to death. You're free to, to, to invite others to help you do that. You're free. Isn't that amazing? Why would God do that? Why would he do that? Let me give you a hint. It's not because of anything special about you or me. But it's entirely about something absolutely spectacular about him. It's all according to the riches of his grace which he lavishes upon us. Unmerited favor, that's what, that's what grace means. Unmerited favor, that means that you didn't earn it, you, you can't earn it, you don't deserve it. In fact, you deserve the opposite. 
is what it means. You deserve the opposite of what God gives you in Christ. You deserve death. He gives you life. You, you deserve wrath. He gives you an eternal reward. Grace upon grace upon grace in never-ending supply. Unlike my checking account, right? <laughs> set free from fear. Set free from guilt. But you're not only redeemed from punishment, but you're also redeemed for something incredibly beautiful. God makes known to us the mystery of his will. That is, God gives us the amazing privilege of knowing his eternal plans. And this is his plan. Verse 10, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. The plan is to unite everything, to reorder everything under the rule of Christ. Now, those who believe the gospel, those who reject the gospel, we will all be united under the rule of Christ. He will rule and reign over all of us. That rule will be glorious or eternally painful, depending on what we do with Jesus. But for Christians, in other words, his plan is not just to set us free from sin and death, but to also unite us together, to bind us together as his people, as his body. And he is the head to be bound together under the rule of Jesus. This is a blessing you cannot enjoy by yourself as an individual, right? but only together in Christ. What a glorious future that awaits us in him. Even while we struggle now with habitual sins, personal failures, failing bodies, anxieties, mental health struggles, loneliness, grief, and on and on, even though we're living in the midst of all of that, we can be sure that already and forever we live in unity. Right now and forever, we live in unity under Christ. We are redeemed by the Son to enjoy forgiveness, lavish grace, and unity in Christ. And there's still more. Lastly, we see that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. In God's sovereignty from before the foundation of the world, He predestines us. He loves us. He chooses us. He pursues us, saves us, adopts us. And as sons and daughters, he promises us an inheritance. We are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Right? A seal was like a marker of ownership and protection. Right? And God's seal of permanent ownership and constant protection of his people is the Holy Spirit himself. That's the seal. The Holy Spirit marks us as gods and therefore marks us as safe, as safe from the evil forces that are at work in this world. The Holy Spirit also serves as a down payment, right? The first installment of the fullness of eternal life, the full payment of enjoying God that will be ours when Christ returns. As one commentator says, the Holy Spirit is like the delicious first course of the sumptuous spiritual feast to come in the new creation. What does this mean? First and foremost, it's the blessing of assurance. Of assurance. That your standing with God is not riding upon your performance and it's up and down, up and down, up and down, moment by moment, day by day. But assurance that, that you're secure, marked, sealed by the Holy Spirit, you are secure in Christ. 
It's God's way of, of, of saying that, that you are forever His. He has made you so. And you are forever His. Nothing can snatch you out of His hand. Right? Nothing. Nothing. You belong to Him. You were bought with a price. Your life is not your own. God has placed His seal on you. And that seal is the Holy Spirit. In the end, you see that the whole Trinity is involved in your rescue and the blessings that follow. Ultimately, you have assurance of the irreversible election of the Father. He chose you before the foundation of the world and nothing can undo that choice. The irreversible redemption of the Son. What does Jesus say from his cross? As he pays your penalty in full, he says, it is finished. It's irreversible. It's done. And the irreversible indwelling and sealing of the Holy Spirit. So your blessings flow from God the Father, through God the Son, by God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit seals you as belonging to God. That seal is a guarantee. A guarantee. A guarantee that God will finish what he has begun in you. A guarantee that God will never leave you or forsake you. What a blessing. A guarantee that that God will continue to bless you and lavish you with his grace. You have been chosen by the Father for adoption, redeemed by the Son to enjoy the forgiveness of sins, the lavish grace of God, and to be united together in Christ. And you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of your future inheritance. How should these blessings give shape to your life? There are two phrases that are each repeated three times through this passage that are pointing us to how we should respond. First, in verses 5, 9, and 11, we're told that that these blessings are given according to his purpose, according to the purpose of his will, it says. This reminds us that, that God stands sovereignly behind and over all that is happening in our lives and in our world. And even though we don't always understand how certain things are a part of his plan, he invites us to trust him. He invites us to trust him. To borrow an illustration uh, from another preacher, right? Life, life is like this complex tapestry. And from our perspective, we only see underneath. We see this shapeless tangle of loose ends, and they don't make much sense to us. But from God's perspective, right, everything is working out beautifully and precisely according to plan. So our response should be to trust him because he's good. He's gracious. We can trust him. The second phrase, which you see in verses 6, 12, and 14, is where Paul emphasizes that God's blessing, blessings are given to us to the praise of his glory or to the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, these blessings are meant to stir our hearts to worship God with our whole lives, to resist the pressures of our culture, to just live and, and to live obedient lives of holiness. Like when you know what you have, why are we going to settle for what the world says we should do with sexuality and relationships? We're going to trust him that his way is the best way, that his way is the good way. Live lives of worship and honoring him by obeying what he says. It's going to lead us to open our mouths and testify to God's grace 
as we share the gospel with our unbelieving neighbors. Jesus comes to us as his disciples and says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. That's not for the spiritual elite. That's not for people in vocational ministry. That's for every Christian. And when we understand what we have in Christ, it will be our delight to share that good news with people who need to hear it so that God might call his people to himself through that proclamation. It'll lead us to worship by sharing Jesus with others. And it'll lead us to sing, to sing together, to worship as one people, the people of God, the body of Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace. We will not even stop for punctuation or proper sentence construction. We will just erupt in, in, in worship, in, in praise. We must remember, right? We, we must remember that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Not because we are awesome and amazing, but because He is awesome and He is amazing. He is gracious and good. So look at Him. Look at Him. Look at how glorious He is, how He loves you, how He blesses you. The only right response is to live together lives that bless the God who blesses us. And when you know the reality of your need, where you stand apart from God in Christ, intervening into your life, what God has made available to you in Christ, when you know that, the only response is to give yourself to him in faith, to receive him. And so if you don't know him today, that's the invitation for you to see what he has made available to you and to cling to him in faith. And when you understand what you truly have in Christ, every spiritual blessing, when you begin to grasp that, it will more and more move you to live together, together as the children of God that you are. Let's pray.